never have opened before. It's Nehemiah, for those of you reading on other devices. Uh, I got told off the other day for only giving a page number. Somebody said, I'm reading on my smartphone. So I thought you were tweeting. Maybe, maybe doing both. But anyway, whatever you're looking it up on, it's Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, page 485 uh, in your Bibles. And we're going to continue our little series that we've called Building Life with God. I've been reading a, a, a fascinating book, thoroughly recommend it if you're in, even vaguely interested in the subject, uh, by Chris Hadfield, who's a Canadian uh, astronaut, one of the most experienced astronauts in the world. It always feels wrong saying that, um, in the universe, one ought to say, uh, who spent more than 4,000 hours in space and uh, has written an autobiography. Uh, even if you're not really into space travel, the, the place you may have heard of him he became world famous because from space he did all these educational videos, but most importantly of all, he's the guy that recorded a zero-gravity version of David Bowie's um, A Space Oddity. Um, uh, and uh, this is his book, it's rather fun. Uh, and he talks about the, the years and years and years, literally from childhood, roughly from the age of nine, that he aspired to be an astronaut. That was all that he wanted to do. And despite the fact that was highly unlikely because he was a Canadian and the Canadians weren't putting very much money into space travel, therefore they didn't get very many slots on space uh, craft, he was determined that's what he was going to do. And uh, there's all quite interesting the number of years he had to wait and the years between space missions. Um, but uh, I did really captivated by one of the first paragraphs in the whole book. Floating in the airlock before my very first spacewalk, I knew I was on the verge of rare beauty. To drift outside, fully immersed in the spectacle of the universe, while holding onto a spaceship orbiting Earth at 17,500 miles per hour. It was a moment I'd been dreaming of and walking toward my whole life. But poised on the edge of the sublime, I faced a somewhat ridiculous dilemma. How best to get out there? It occurred to him that here was this round airlock and a very square astronaut with his backpack on and his uh, manoeuvring device and all his tool belts, and he had to manoeuvre himself out of this tiny little hole. And all of these years of training building up to this moment all felt suddenly incredibly just prosaic and logical. How on earth am I going to get myself through that hole? This moment, how am I going to do it? Now, you may not ever have that airlock moment. You may never reach that point where you think, this is the thing that I've been dreaming of for 40 years or 30 years of my life. But I want to suggest that each of us has the question that he had to deal with in life, in our lives. And Rosie, as she grows up, is going to face this question too. The question is, how do we both prepare for the big moments of life but also make sure that all the the preparation is worth it in itself. How do we make sure that we're ready for the the big decisions we're going to take? Maybe a decision about a career. Maybe a decision about something to do with integrity. Maybe a decision to do with marriage or relationships or kids. How are we going to make sure that we're ready for those big decisions? We may not know when they're going to come. But how do we make sure at the same time that the life we're building in the meantime is worth living? Uh, Chris Hadfield points out that there are some astronauts that train for a decade, two decades, and never make it into space. 
says that there were some astronauts who'd been training for 10, 12 years who were set up for maybe um, getting into space in a couple of years' time, and suddenly the space, sh space shuttle was grounded, the program was shut, and they were having to use the Soyuz spacecraft to get into space. No big deal, you think, except for the fact that the Soyuz spacecraft can take astronauts who are four or five inches shorter only than the space shuttle can. Overnight, a whole bunch of astronauts who trained all their working life for this one thing could never go into space because the space shuttle wasn't available anymore. He makes the point, how do you build a life that is worth living in the meantime but is also ready for those big moments, for those airlock moments? We've been tracing the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, two people you may never have heard of, people who lived so long ago their lives must have been immeasurably, unimaginably different from ours, some two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, in the Middle East. But there were people, and Nehemiah in particular, whose story we're going to look at briefly today. They were people who knew what it was to try and build a life with God that was worth living every day, but where they were ready for that airlock moment, the moment when they had to make the big decision, the moment when it was going to count. And for Nehemiah, his airlock moment, his moment of stepping into space, wasn't just going to be dangerous for him, though it was just as dangerous for him as it was for Chris Hadfield. He literally feared for his life. But what Nehemiah was about to do would, and this is not an exaggeration, change world history. That one decision he took changed the course of human history. Let me read to you what happened, um, and then I need to explain how he got there and what it was all about. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, just a few verses at the beginning of that chapter. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, well, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heavens and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. What an odd situation. What an exotic location. What a thing to compare with an astronaut stepping into space or to connect with us sitting in a church building on a Sunday morning in leafy St. Margaret's. Nehemiah was at the moment, that moment, some 500 years before Christ, living in a city called Susa in the um, uh, empire of Persia. But he didn't really belong there. He was a Jew from the ancient people of Israel. And he and his people, or at least his ancestors before him, some 100 years before him, had been stolen away from their land, first by Bab the Babylonians, who had scooped up maybe the 1,000 or 2,000 uh, wealthiest, most educated leaders in the country in order to inculcate and to integrate them into Babylonian culture, in order to stop Israel being a threat. 
And then as Babylon had fallen and Persia had become the, the great superpower of the region, their ancestors, ancestors had lived on and become very useful. It seems that Nehemiah had one of the most trusted positions in the king's household. It sounds like a, just a sort of simple waiter's job to you and me. I brought him his wine. But actually, he was the wine taster, which didn't mean he went, oh, that one's nice and that one's not nice. He tasted them to make sure nobody could poison the king. He was one of the most trusted people in the whole of the kingdom. Here he was, part of God's ancient people, Israel, a Jew living in Persia, bringing wine to the king of Persia. And what we heard last week, for those of you who are here, from Nehemiah 1 and what we knew from Ezra in the book before, was that his heart was broken in two. Because what he'd heard, maybe of a city, as far as we can tell, he'd never visited, was that his home city, that the city that spiritually and emotionally and psychologically defined him, defined his people, defined his whole identity, the city of Jerusalem, was destroyed. Or in particular, its walls were destroyed. Now, of course, go back not that many hundreds of years, and your city walls weren't simply a place tourists could walk around. They were simply your lifeblood. They could be shut at night to stop raiding parties. They kept enemies out. They kept the people in. They were within those walls. You paid the taxes and you were safe. Those walls were destroyed. And Nehemiah was heartbroken. He was devastated. And he knew that there was nothing that he could do on his own. Here was Nehemiah, potentially in a place of influence with the great king of Persia. Just one man, but with potential for influence. And he hears from his brother of the situation of Jerusalem. And then four and a half months pass until his airlock moment. The moment when he has to step into the void and where he has to know that he's going to do this whatever happens. So why was this so dangerous? What was the problem for Nehemiah? The problem was that you never, ever showed any emotion other than happiness and joy before an ancient king. You just didn't. You didn't turn up if you were sick. That's how the king said to him, well, I know you're not sick, because that wasn't allowed. But you didn't go in looking fed up or miserable or sad. You went in with a smile on your face. Nothing was to burden the king. And if he was displeased with you, he didn't just send you away. He almost certainly put you to death. So at that moment, that airlock moment, he has to decide, is he going to step into the void? Is he going to speak up for his people? I want to suggest two things. One is that everything that went before that moment was building a life or part of building a life that was worth living in itself, but that prepared him for what he had to do as he stepped into the void. And that he provides us a model for our own lives, but also for the life that Rose is going to be living over the years to come and for all the children that we know as they build their lives with God. Of preparation, of a rich life lived in its own but also being ready for those moments that we have to step out and be counted. The first thing that we know Nehemiah had been doing was simply preparing. He'd had four and a half months, and from the speech that he goes on to make, I haven't read the rest of it um, out loud, but you'll see in Nehemiah 2 that he's clearly got this very, very carefully worked speech and plan. He doesn't simply blurt out, "Um, Oh, king, could you help me do something about Jerusalem? He's clearly spent four and a half months getting a project ready. He's worked out who he needs, what he needs, 
where he needs it from, how long it's going to take him, and exactly what he's going to ask the king. He has prepared and prepared and prepared. It's one of the things that strikes you about the astronaut's life. Years and years, apparently astronauts can spend up to three years preparing for one mission. Three years just for one mission into space. They'll be down into the, the, the big um, the water tanks, preparing for the spacewalks, preparing again and again for any possible eventuality, things that might go wrong, losing a spanner in space, something not attaching properly, an emergency light that might go off. They prepare and they prepare and they prepare. We've had a, a loads of examples over the last three days in, in Glasgow of athletes who've, who've said in interviews, I have been preparing for years for this moment. Preparing. Preparing in his thinking, preparing in his planning, but also preparing in his praying. Coming to God and saying, I want to be ready. I want you to soften the king's heart. I want you to get things ready so that when I do go to the king, there's going to be a yes. It's interesting, again, that Chris Hadfield writes about the fact that he simply couldn't live life as an astronaut if the only thing that he enjoyed was whizzing around in space, as he puts it. He says, you'd soon get bored if the only thing you were willing to do was to go up in a spacecraft. Not simply because you might never do it, but because the huge majority of time, that's not what you're doing. It had to be the case for Nehemiah that his life wasn't simply about this one moment in front of the king. He didn't actually know if that would ever come. You and I don't know what our future lives will hold. We don't know if we're ever going to get that airlock moment, that moment that will define our lives. Most people, most of the time, live lives that seem relatively straightforward. Most of us aren't famous. Most of us don't change the course of world history. Most of us live a daily life that has to be worth living in itself. That's what Nehemiah was doing. Praying, thinking, planning, working with God, living a daily life with him that was worth living. That's what we're praying for Rosa. That's what we pray for every child that we baptize, that their daily, everyday life will be rich and full of God, that they'd enjoy each day, not just for what tomorrow might bring, but for the day in itself. But there was a second thing that Nehemiah needed, not simply preparation, but also massive patience. If you just look a little bit further back into chapter 1, you'll find um, verse 11, literally the, the, the last verse just before chapter 2. When his brother comes to him, this is four and a half months before he then goes to see the king. Listen to what he prays. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And yet we know by the fact that it was then the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that he had to wait a hundred days for his moment. What amazing patience. It's the hardest thing in life, maybe, for some of us. The patience not to need everything today. The patience to pray and not give up, as Jesus says. The patience to work in whatever we're doing, in our careers, in our parenting, in our relationships, in our life together as a church, to trust God for the everyday, to be patient, to wait for 100 todays, 500 todays. Nehemiah had that patience as he prepared. But then what about that moment? 
that moment when he went before the king, that moment when he needed to take a deep breath, when he saw his moment to come. Now, we're not sure why that day was the day. There must have been a reason. He probably saw the king every day, so we don't know why exactly that day. It may have simply been that he decided the king was in a good mood. It might have been that the king had been away, and he was now back in the capital. It could have been, and this was certainly true of many ancient civilizations, that there were particular times of year, maybe the king's birthday, maybe New Year, and this was the New Year month, the month of Nisan, when the king was sort of obligated by tradition to say yes to people who asked him a favor. Could have been for any number of reasons, but for one reason or another, Nehemiah knew today was the day. And he again does two things. The first is that he faces his fear. Verse 2, the second part of verse 2 in chapter 2. I was very much afraid. Those who are courageous, those who are brave in that moment of decision, aren't those who feel no fear, but those who face their fear and do it anyway. When you read the stories, as many of us have been doing this year, of those who fought in the First World War on whatever side, and you read the letters home, the ones that grab your heart are the ones that talk about their fear, that talk about the courage that they had to show because of their fear, in spite of their fear, not because they felt no fear. I wonder what decision you've been most scared of in your life so far. I wonder whether it was worth it. It might have been the day that you stood up to your employer. It might have been the day you asked somebody to marry you. It might have been the day you brought baby home for the first time. It might have been the day that you took that promotion and you walked into the office for the first time. Actually facing our fear, humanly speaking, is incredibly important. Not denying it, but saying, I am very much afraid. But doing it anyway. That was Nehemiah's example. There are countless people down through history, and all the people you'll never meet, and you in your own life, saying to God, I am afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. But he needed a reason to step out. He needed a reason to go through that fear. For Chris Hadfield, the astronaut, his reason was he wanted to get out there into space. I mean, everything in him since he was nine had wanted to walk in space. He was going to get through his fear because he wanted to be out there. For Nehemiah, his reason was that he was absolutely convinced that the God of heaven and earth was with him. Listen to what happens. He says to the king, verse 3, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heavens, and I answered the king. He prays and answers. It must have been one of those short arrow prayers. He might not have even put any words to it. It doesn't say that he prayed a particular prayer. It was almost like in his heart he glanced up at God. That moment just before you walk onto the pitch and you look at the people that are supporting you. That moment just before you walk into an exam and your mum or dad gives you your hand a squeeze. That moment just before you step into a difficult meeting. 
and you look at a photo of the people that you love, or you just pause for a moment, you think, I can do this. And actually, as a Christian, all of those moments where we just look up and we remember who's with us. And who is with him? He says, I pray to the God of heaven. Here is Nehemiah walking into the throne room of, at that moment of time, the most powerful man in the universe. King Artaxerxes, the ruler of Persia, one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. He is walking in there, about, he is about to say something to him no person should ever say. He's about to ask for a favor that may be denied. He is about to put his life on the line. So what does he do? Metaphorically speaking, he looks above the crown, above the throne, to the one who sits on the throne of heaven. And remembers it's him. He's on the throne. There is a God who is above, even Artaxerxes. That's the reason I'm going to face my fear. That's the reason I'm going to take a step into the void. But he wouldn't have been able to face his fear. That prayer would have been of no use to him if it hadn't have been for the months, the years that went before. That's what he needed. That's what made the difference. Those years of preparation, those years of living life with God, made possible that moment of stepping through the airlock. And it did change history. Transformed history because Nehemiah being allowed to go back to Jerusalem meant that Jerusalem was re-established. Jerusalem being re-established meant that God's people, ancient Israel, were re-established in their land. And it was Jerusalem to which Jesus came, where Jerusalem, where Jesus lived and died and rose again. It was God's people, the Jews, into whom Jesus was born. And it was Jesus whose birth split history into two, the heart of time and of the universe. That one moment in Nehemiah's life changed history. Now, you and I may never get to do that, but we will have tens, hundreds of airlock moments, moments where we have to choose to be a person of integrity, but we're afraid, moments when we have to be courageous in our friendships, in our work, in our family life, in our parenting, and our relationships, moments where we have to step out, not knowing whether it would be disaster or success, and all the days in between where we want to live a life where we're building a rich and positive life with God. And Nehemiah says to us, do it with God. Do it praying and recognizing the God of the heavens. Do it recognizing your fear, but do it recognizing that there is somebody who sits high above all, and who walks with us into every decision and into every day. We're going to pause for a moment and pray. And uh, let's just bring ourselves to God as we are, whatever it is that this coming week brings, whatever it is that this summer brings. And then I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing as we bring our service to a close. Father God, thank you for the example of Nehemiah. Thank you for his life lived with you day by day. Thank you for his prayer and his walk with you. Thank you for his willingness to face his fear and to bow before the king of the heavens. And we pray that every day of our lives we would build life with you.
So that when those airlock moments come, when those moments of courage are needed, we would trust you and step out and make a difference where we are. And so may Almighty God enrich you with his grace and nourish you with his blessings. May he defend you in trouble and keep you from all evil. May he answer your prayers and absolve all your offences. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest upon you and upon those you love this day and forevermore. Amen.